This sermon is brought to you by Christ Church South Philadelphia, a church that is committed to living out the gospel in their neighborhood and from there impacting the world. For more information about our church or to support our mission, you can go to www.ChristChurchSouthPhilly.org. Please open your Bibles to the book of Colossians chapter 2. If you need a Bible, you can shoot your hand up in the air. We have people in the back who'd be happy to get that Bible to you. Um, so thank you so much. You can point your hand there. Um, let's see. Uh, where I don't see any of my people who are supposed to be getting Bibles. Hey, Matt, could you grab some Bibles and take it back there? Thank you. I'm just going to call someone out. Um, thank you. So I appreciate that. Um, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 2 today, so you can start making your way to that. And I just want to start going there. I just want to thank you for praying for me. Uh, I was away, as you know, uh, this past weekend, um, helping another church through a difficult time. A, a friend of mine had called me. Uh, about towards the end of May, and just asked for some help with some things that they were, they were going through. And I brought it to our elders to say, hey, what should we do with this? Because I don't handle my schedule. I, too, am a man under authority. And so um, I wanted to help, but I also knew that I'd already committed to being away actually next week uh, at a church. I'd made that commitment about a year ago. And so I, I struggled with being gone from here again. Uh, so as I brought this to our elders, our pastors here, um, they just kindly... Uh, but clearly and firmly uh, said, we know you love Christ Church, but it's okay. We got it. Uh, this is why we have multiple elders. This is why we have multiple pastors go and serve. And so I just want to publicly honor our pastors. I'm so grateful for these men. I'm so grateful for the men of faith they are. It is my joy to be under their authority, not because they're perfect, but because they sincerely follow Christ. And so we just praise God for Pastor Matt and Pastor Caleb. I'm super grateful for them. As we are in Colossians chapter 2, we're going to be in verses 16 through 23 today. Uh, and Colossians, as we've seen, is a letter that's all about the sufficiency and the supremacy of Jesus Christ. This, this letter written by Paul, inspired by God, has been making this point over and over and over again to us. It's really just one basic point. Christ is enough. Christ is enough. Whatever we go through in life, we can say, for this I have Christ. And Christ is enough. Two weeks ago, we saw Paul begin to describe in Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 15, some of how the Colossian church was being tempted to add to Christ. See, false teachers had come in and said that Jesus was nice. They didn't deny anything about him. They said he's nice, but he's not all that you need. You need, you need some, some extra things sprinkled in there. And today, Paul picks up this conversation and explains in even more detail what some of these things were that the Colossian church was being tempted to add. And so let's turn our attention to God's word through his servant Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, preserved throughout history for us in this very moment today. Folks, we're about to see God's heart for us. We're about to hear God speak to us. So let's turn our attention to his word and be attentive to his voice. God says, Colossians chapter 2, verse 16, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These things are a shadow of the things to come. 
but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in details about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Let's bow our heads and pray that God would meet us through the preaching of his word. And I just want to encourage you to have a moment between you and God and just pray, God, would you speak to me as your word is explained to me? Now would you please pray for me that I would speak clearly and faithfully in a way that glorifies God and is helpful to you. God, thank you for your word which shows us your heart. As we see you today through this text, may we not be changed. <laughs> may we be transformed by the power of your Holy Spirit. God, we need you. And so we come before you with humble hearts. Please speak to us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. As most of you know, I was recently on an overseas missions trip. And when I was in that other country, I brought a handmade carved plate as a memento of my time. And there's just something extra special about things that have been handmade. I mean, it just, it just feels better than something that's been, like, you know, made by a machine, cranked out in the tens of thousands, right? It's, it's special. It's made by a specific person and, 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 and usually end up paying a little bit more money for those things. Something handmade is special, but it depends on whose hand makes it. I guarantee you, you not want anything that's been handmade by me. I have, if you know me at all, absolutely zero skills when it comes to anything involving tools, uh, there are many house projects where my wife is actually the one to get it done, and that's not because we're fighting any kind of gender stereotypes, it's just because we don't want our house to fall apart, which is what happens when I often take up tools. You won't want anything from me that I made myself. And what God is saying to us through these verses is that we shouldn't want any kind of religion from anyone that they make themselves. We shouldn't want a self-made Religion. Paul describes all these different things in verses 16 through 22, but he sums them up in verse 23 by saying that all these things, what they have in common is they are self-made. This, this was the danger that was in front of the Colossian church. False teachers were trying to get them to follow a self-made version of Christianity instead of trusting only in Christ. And in verse 23, Paul says that this self-made religion has no value 
and stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And so that really shows you what these false teachers were promising. They were promising that this self-made version of religion would help the Colossians stop the indulgence of their flesh. The flesh is often used in the Bible to talk about our sinful desires. And if you've ever felt trapped by a sinful desire, if you've ever experienced doing something that you know isn't good for you, that you know God doesn't want for you, and yet a, like, a, like a moth drawn to a flame, you just keep going back to it again and again, and you can't seem to shake yourself from it. If you know what it feels like to have a persistent and a pervasive struggle, then you can see why this promise is so enticing. Maybe, maybe I do need something more than Jesus. Maybe there is something that I'm missing, and that's why I'm not growing in the ways that I want to. Maybe I need a little something else sprinkled in in order to experience the freedom that I so desperately desire. But like something handmade by me, a religion that has been made by others and is not founded on Christ, is not going to last you long or do you much good. And so I've been telling this morning's sermon, Deconstructing Self-Made Religion deconstructing self-made religion. And here's really the big idea that I think God wants us to just have driven home to our hearts. Real growth. Real growth. Not, not fake growth, not short growth, but real, lasting, true growth. Real growth comes not from a religion made up by us, but from the presence of Christ in us. Real growth comes not from a religion made up by us, but from the presence of Christ in us. Today, I want us to see the heart of self-made religion and then the harm of self-made religion, and then finally, the healing from self-made religion. The heart, the harm, the healing. Let's turn our attention to point one, the heart of self-made religion. We see the first thing that the Colossians were struggling with in verse 16. They were struggling with diets and with days. In the law that God gave the Israelites, there are all kinds of rules about the various foods you could and couldn't eat. And there are all kinds of rules about certain festivals that were supposed to be celebrated on certain days to celebrate the work that God had done for them. These festivals were known as Sabbaths, and that's what Paul is referring to here. This is not to be confused with the Sabbath, which was a weekly rhythm, a day devoted to worshiping God in community. That's not what's being referred to here. These are the Sabbaths, the festivals of the Jewish people. And so both these dietary laws and these festivals, or Sabbaths, these were good things, right? They were good things. Their food laws kept them healthy. And it showed them on a daily basis that God was to rule them, not their stomachs. And the festivals celebrated the work that God had done for them, which was a good thing to do. But while those were good things, they were not meant to be ultimate things. As Paul says here, they were meant to be shadows, pointing forward to something greater that was to come. If you're walking down the street on a sunny day and someone is coming up behind you, you will see their shadow before you see them. In seeing their shadow, you can begin to tell some vague things about them. But when that person comes in view, well, that's when you see who is actually there. And it'd be weird if someone comes into your view and you don't look at them, but you just look down at their shadow. And you start introducing yourself to their shadow. And you try to shake the hand of their shadow. 
Um, like, that's the kind of stuff that will get you locked up pretty fast in a room with a bunch of padded walls. Like, that's a weird thing to do. We don't relate to people's shadows. We relate to the person. And so what Paul is saying here is that the law God gave Israel was a shadow that was meant to point to the person that was coming. And so these dietary laws were a shadow of Christ, the one who is truly pure. The festivals celebrating the work of God were a shadow of Christ and the ultimate work of God that he would do in Jesus to bring about our salvation by dying on the cross for our sins and then rise to new life to prove that he is truly the Son of God. And so Paul is saying, Christ is here. Why are you still talking to the shadows? Why would you go back to a shadow when the person is right in front of you? What you've only seen in shadow form before has now been fully revealed in him. Which doesn't mean that as followers of Jesus, we just throw off any kind of moral restraint or any law whatsoever. No, Jesus' most famous sermons, the Sermon on the Mount, is all about how Jesus came to give an even deeper meaning to the law. So for example, he says that the law of Israel told people not to murder, but then he goes on to say, but if you even hate someone in your heart, that's the same as murdering them. He says the law says you should not look at someone with lust in your eyes, so desire them sexually if they're not your spouse. You, 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 shouldn't, you shouldn't do that, but God says that not only should you not commit adultery, but, but if you are looking at someone that way, you just commit adultery in your heart, right? And so the law had all these external rules that people were supposed to keep, but Jesus showed that all these rules were ultimately about, not really rules, they were ultimately about who's going to rule your heart. And when Christ came to earth and brought with him the Holy Spirit, now we experience what the prophet Ezekiel spoke about in Ezekiel chapter 36, where the Holy Spirit gives us hearts of flesh that want to please God. And so being a Christian is not about following rules. Being a Christian is about living willingly under the rule of Christ. To be a Christian is to be someone whose heart has been transformed to want to serve Jesus, not just to have to. To want to listen to Jesus. To want to be led by him. Which doesn't mean that we'll do that perfectly, by no means, but it does mean that we will want to do that sincerely. But what was happening with these people in Colossae was they were going back to these ceremonial and ritualistic rules. And Paul's saying, why are you going back to the shadow? It's a downgrade from the person. And not only were they going back to these religious rituals, but they're also adding in these pagan practices. He mentions three asceticism, which was the practice of severe bodily discipline, sometimes meant even denying yourself food or drink, like I'm just going to really beat myself up to show how, you know, spiritual I am. Or he mentions too the, the, the worship of angels. It was a common practice in ancient times. There was the belief that there were these, you know, territorial spirits over different parts of the world. And so if you want to reign, well, then you need to pray to the reign spirit of that place. If you want to be prosperous in a certain place, then you need to pray to the, to the angel of that town. And then third, he mentions pursuing having these visions. Visions were actually often sought after by asceticism. So, like, you'd starve yourself, and then you'd hallucinate, and that was seen as this, like, religious experience, this spiritual high that you were having. And so here's what's happening in Colossae. These people had heard the gospel. They'd received the good news of Jesus, but they were being told that in order to really grow... They need to add in all this other stuff. None of which God had said they need to add in. In fact, it was the opposite of what God had said. 
None of this, as Paul points out, is according to God's wisdom. But instead, as he says in verse 22, it's according to human precepts and teachings. Friends, self-made religion is what we create whenever we add to what God has said. Let me repeat that again in case you missed it because it's important. Self-made religion is what we create whenever we add to what God has said. And there are a million and one ways that we can do that. These people did it by trying to bring back the Israelite law that Christ has said he fulfilled and by adding in these pagan practices that God said nothing to do with following him. But the bottom line is that, that self-made religion is when we add to what God has said for this purpose, to give ourselves a sense of control. So that's really what's at the heart of self-made religion. It's a focus on yourself and your ability to control things. See, that, that, that's what these false teachers were selling. They were saying, God's not operating on your timetable, so here's how you take control of that. Start praying to angels. You, you want to stop indulging your flesh? Here's how you take control of that. Learn how to practice these rituals. Learn how to add these disciplines in your life. Learn how to do more things. It's all about control, control, control. This is what self-made religion does. It places the emphasis on ourselves, on our efforts, and our ability to be in control of things. And so parents, you want to change your kids. So you need to make sure you get them in the right kind of school. You need to make sure you speak to them in exactly the right way because perfect parenting equals perfect kids, right? It's control. Or maybe you have a bad habit in your life and you keep buying book after book after book of the next five-step program, how to break that bad habit. And you're keeping Barnes and Nobles in business just by buying all these books. Or you want to see God do something miraculous in your life. You're like, man, I just need to learn. It's not happening because I'm not praying in the right way. I'm not saying the right thing. My heart's not in the right place. It's, it's control. It's putting the focus on ourselves. That's at the heart of self-made religion. It's when we add to what God says, so we can smuggle some of ourselves in there and start to try to control things. But there's tremendous harm in that. There's tremendous harm in that. Let's look at point number two, the harm of self-made religion. In verse 16, Paul says, let no one judge you. And then verse 18, he says, let no one disqualify you. See, this is what self-made religion does. When we add to God's word, we begin to give ourselves the right to judge and disqualify other people. In other words, we begin to give ourselves the right to be in the place of God. To think that we need to supplement God's word is to call God insufficient and to say that we know better. That might not be what we're saying conscious, consciously, but that's what our hearts are showing whenever we start to add what we think to what God has said. To add to God's word is to believe that God should do things our way, which means that we are placing ourselves over God. And when we place ourselves over God, we will feel a right to begin to start judging other people. Now, by judging, I certainly do not mean that we should not, in love, speak to friends who we see are clearly not following things that God says, right? There are things that God clearly says in his word that we should stay away from, things that God clearly says in his word that we should do, things that God clearly wants for us 
about how we can best thrive in life. And so if we see someone acting or pursuing choices that God says are not for their good, then we're not loving them if we're not talking about that. Right? So when my wife says to me, Jeff, you're being very angry right now and not speaking with much kindness, she's not judging me. I can't wait. Hey, don't judge me, flag. No, I can't do that. No, no, she's helping me. She's helped me put off my anger and turn to Christ in repentance that I might put on his character of compassion and kindness and grace. And so we need people. I need people speaking into my life. And that's not judgment. That's grace. But when we're trying to hold someone to a standard that's not explicitly set in Scripture, but it just comes from our own thoughts about how life should be lived, when we're trying to hold people to our standard and not God's standard, well, now we are standing in judgment over them. So, for example, we can judge people. I mean, I just, all kinds of things we can judge people for. What, list, what music they listen to or don't listen to. What movies or TV shows they watch or don't watch. How people spend their time and what they shouldn't spend their time on. 2024, who we vote for. Big temptation to judge. What school we decide to put our kids in. Right, The list goes on and on. And there might be some things in those categories that God gives us clear commands. But honestly, most of it is just left up to us trying to figure out things as best as we can. And when we take our wisdom and equate it to having the authority of God's word. And then think. That someone is not a sincere Christian because they're not following what we think about things. If we do that, then we put ourselves in the place of God. And friends, that is no place for us to be. That's a dangerous place for us to be. Because God will not share his throne. James chapter 4 verse 6 says, God opposes the proud. There's a danger when we are judging others. And there's a danger in letting ourselves be judged by others, which is actually where Paul places the emphasis on these, in these verses. Notice, Paul does not directly address the false teachers for judging these Colossians. That's not what he says. He speaks to the Colossians and says, don't let them judge you. Don't let them disqualify you. What does he mean by that? Well, obviously, people are going to do what people are going to do. And so Paul isn't suggesting that somehow they were to put to stop to these false teachers judging them. We can't control if someone's going to judge us or not. But we can control if we let ourselves feel judged by them or not. If you're feeling judged by someone, it's only because you care what they think about you. They would have no power over you that you are not choosing to give them. If we didn't care, then we wouldn't feel judged. These Colossians were in danger of believing that Christ was not enough. Not because that's what God's word says. Not because that's what God was speaking to them. They, they thought that maybe Christ isn't enough because that's what these people were speaking to them. And they were being tempted to live to please these people instead of living to please God. And that's a dangerous place to be spiritually. Trying to please people can lead us down a bad path of creating a false persona an unreal, manufactured reputation where we feel like we have to pretend to be perfect or at least hold it together enough that we don't lose people's good opinion of us. Friends, living to please people will ultimately lead to a superficial obedience to God. 
It will lead to concealing struggles. It will lead to maybe covering up struggles in the present or shame from the past. It will lead you to conforming to just what you think other people want to hear. And if you do that, then your walk with God will feel fake. You'll feel like a fraud. And it will do harm to your soul. And so both judging other people or feeling judged by other people is harmful to us. And they're really just two sides of the same coin. In both those situations, we're making people big and God small. If we're judging someone, we're making ourselves big and God small. If we're feeling judged by someone, we're making them big and God small. We are valuing self. Either way, it's life centered on self instead of life centered on Christ. Self-made religion puts the focus on us and that's harmful to us because real growth comes not from a religion made up by us but from the presence of Christ in us. That's like point number three, the healing from self-made religion. In verse 19, Paul says that if we are feeling judged, if we're feeling disqualified, then we are, as he says in verse 19, not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished it together through its joints and ligaments grows with the growth that is from God. Paul's picking up on a theme here that he's already talked about, about Jesus being our head. He calls Jesus our head in chapter 1, verse 18. He calls him that again in chapter 2, verse 10. The idea of headship is that of having authority, of providing direction for, of being the, the entity that other things are under the control of. F.F. F. Bruce, who's a famous theologian from the UK, he said this way in his commentary on Colossians. He said, each part of the body functions properly so long as it's under the control of the head. If it escapes from this control and begins to act independently, the consequences can be very distressing. Now, I know people in the UK are known for being understated, but I think this quote kind of takes the cake. Like, I'm just thinking, a body escaping the control of the head. Like, yes, that would be a little bit of a distressing situation. Like, you, you, see, you see a headless body walking down the street. You know, a dismembered hand crawling around. Yes, that's a little bit of a very distressing situation. It doesn't make sense. If we, if we saw, you know, like, if we, this is Paul's point. That if you're trying to live apart from Christ, that's a terrible place to be. That should freak us out. In the same way we'd be freaked out by a headless body walking down the street here in South Philly. A body cannot survive without a head. You, you, you can survive having one of your limbs amputated. You, you'll, you'll be okay. You can't survive the amputation of your head. Amputation of your head and you'll be dead. Friends, in the same way, we can as Christians survive without Christ. How we grow as Christians, how we fight the indulgence of our flesh, how we change more and more into the godly people that God wants us to be is not through things other than Jesus, but through learning how to hold fast to Jesus. He is our head. We do not grow apart from him. No, we grow through him. And this is why Paul calls true spiritual growth, growth that comes from God. It comes from God because it comes through Christ. And as Paul's made it very clear already, Christ is fully God. So what does it mean to hold fast to Jesus as our head? 
I think Paul further fleshes that out for us in verse 20, when he says, if with Christ you die to the spirits of the world, why is if you're still alive, do you submit to regulations? He's saying, don't live this kind of way. Why? Why shouldn't you live this kind of way? Because you've already died with Christ. What's he saying here? Paul's taking us back to the beautiful truth of our union with Jesus that comes when we place our faith in Jesus. When we place our faith in Jesus, then who he is becomes who we are. We are united to him. He becomes our new identity. This is why Paul talks about us having died with Christ. We haven't physically died. Like, I hope there's no walking zombies around here. Like, we haven't physically died. But spiritually, when we place our faith in Jesus, since he died, his death has now become our death. This is good news for us because our sin against God requires death. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. God's given us life to live for him, and when we choose to instead sin against God and use our life to rebel against him, the justice of God means that he should take back the life that he gave. What we owe God for our life of sin is a debt of death. But the reason that God's not going to require death from us is not because God is choosing to turn a blind eye to our sin, but because God sees us as having already paid the debt of our death for our life of sin. And it's not because we paid a cent. No, it's because Jesus has paid it all. And when we are united to him, then what he has done gets applied to us as if we had done it. We have an illustration of what this means right, right for us in the Bible. God's given us an illustration. He created it in Genesis chapter 2, and he describes it in Ephesians chapter 5. It's marriage. Right? In marriage, you have two people come together. And this is marriage with no prenuptial agreement. You have two people come together, and all their assets, all their liabilities, all that was once theirs alone is now merged together in their union as the two become one. And Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, this gives us a picture of what it means to place our faith in Christ. When we place our faith in Jesus, then the two, he and us, the two become one now together. And all the liabilities that we bring into that relationship, and oh, there are many liabilities that we bring into that relationship. There are many debts that we have that we bring into our relationship with Christ. But whatever discredit we bring with us, does not surpass the credit that Christ has in himself. Our liabilities get paid for by his assets. His death now covers our debt of death. And so what this means is holding fast to our head. It means believing in who Jesus is and who we now are with him. It's not enough just to believe who he is. Oh no, we need to believe that yes, he died, but not just he died. When he died... I've been united to his death, and so I've died with him. See, friends, what Paul is saying to us here is how we grow as Christians is by, leaving, is by believing in the identity we have in Christ through our union by faith. How we grow as Christians is not through greater self-effort or more willpower. It's through more Christ-focus. The more that Jesus captures our hearts. The more we see the beauty and magnificence of who he is, 
the more we will grow into the people he has made us to be in him. This is why Paul started his letter by just extolling the glories of Christ. Right? We have one of the clearest pictures of all who Jesus is given to us in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He goes on to say in verse 28, it is him we proclaim. He says this in 2 verse 6, as you receive Christ, so now walk in him. Right, Paul's making this point to us again and again. The more we see the value of Jesus, the more we'll grow into being the people that we can only be through being united to him. So what do we need? We need him. We don't need more than Christ. We need more of Christ. We need to see the glory of Jesus. The more we see his glory, oh, the more we'll become like the glorious one that we get to behold. Let me try to make it plain this way. I was recently reading a book called Climb, which is about the true story of a group of climbers that tried to summit Mount Everest in 1996. As they were going to the summit, a massive storm hit that group, and two of their party got split off from the rest, and they were in extreme Danger. Their only hope for survival was to get down off the exposed face back to their base camp. The challenge was one of the, these two people was terribly sick with altitude sickness. And so he was weak. He could barely stand, let alone walk. He was disoriented. He literally didn't know which way was up and which way was down. But fortunately, he was not by himself. Fortunately, he was with a climbing expert. And so the climbing expert said, tether yourself to me. Hold fast to me. You don't need to be strong right now. You just need to trust that I'm strong. You don't have to see. You just need to trust that I know where we're going. You don't have to put any confidence in yourself. You just have to know that I've got you. And all you need to do is follow me. And that man that was so close to death made it down safely off the mountain, not by looking to himself, but through being dependent on and trusting in the one that he was tethered to. Friends, this is the picture of the Christian life. How we grow as Christians is not by looking to ourselves. It's not by a self-made religion where we feel like, I got to do this to be in control. No, it's through being dependent on and trusting in the one that we are tethered to. It is through knowing our weakness, not denying it, not trying to act like we have a strength that we don't. It's through knowing our weakness, but believing that he is strong, that we can experience him strengthen us in our weakness. You see, a self-made religion wants you to live a life based on yourself, on your track record, on how well you perform. And that could be religious performance, so all the things you think you did for God this week, 
Or sometimes it could just be your performance in the world, right? How do you determine success? How do you define failure? What do you think will lead you to truly change? Say, well, I'm, a, I'm successful because I. I'm a failure because I. I can change because I. Friends, whenever we say because I, we are forgetting what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian is not someone who lives because I, but lives because him. To be a Christian is someone who says, it is on Christ the solid rock I stand. And all of the ground is sinking sand. And so, if you struggle with lust, your application point is not to go home and try a lot harder to be pure. No, it's look to Christ. See his beauty. Meditate. Saturate yourselves in his excellencies. Feast your soul regularly and repeatedly throughout the day on his delights. And as you see who he is, you'll begin to experience more and more of who he says you are in him. Who he says you are in him is you are not someone who is a captive of lust, but someone who's clothed in the precious purity of Christ. And through seeing him, you will grow more and more into being who you can only be through him. When you are tempted this week to lose your temper and to blow it up at someone or to get really, really silent. I've heard that some people get really silent when they get angry. I don't know what that means, but uh, I've heard it happens in theory. Um, but if that's how you're tempted this week, to either blow up or to get silent, don't try harder just to control your emotions. No, think of Christ who endured the perfectly justified anger of God for sin. For your sin. And because Jesus endured God's white, hot wrath on the cross, you can be forgiven for the very anger that you are tempted to unrighteously feel in that moment. And as you meditate on that, oh friends, that is what will move your heart to peace and patience and kindness. How we grow as Christians is not through greater self-effort, but through a desperate dependency on Christ to look to him with eyes of faith. And I just think so often our stagnation that we can experience, our frustration that we can feel in our struggle against sin, that maybe you're even feeling very poignantly today, that stagnation and frustration is because we're trying to do things in our own strength that God says can only be done in his. We're trying to be something in ourselves that God says can only come through knowing who we are in Christ. And so listen, there might be like tangible, practical steps you need to change. I'm not trying to knock any of that. Like, you keep getting drunk, stop going to the bar, right? Like, come on. But, but ultimately, the uniqueness of how the Bible talks about change is that it comes from the inside out. Not from removing yourself from tempting situations, but from being a different person in that situation. It comes from not external behavior, but from an inward heart transformation that happens through seeing and savoring and delighting in and treasuring the beauty of God in 
Christ. If you've died with Christ, then stop going back to self-made religion that puts the focus on you. No, see Him. Focus on Him and stop trying to control things yourselves. Real growth comes not from a religion made up by us, but from the presence of Christ in us. In other words, friends, Christ is enough. Christ is enough. And so as we come to a close, you've yet to place your faith in Jesus. Friend, I want to speak first to you. God has given you an invitation today. In his gracious kindness, he has you here in this place, or he has you listening to this online, because he loves you. And he wants to rescue you from you. You've gone it alone long enough. May today be the day where you say, I can't do it anymore. I need Christ. It's by admitting your need for him that you get him. And so I pray you would. I pray today would be the day where you put your faith and trust in Jesus. And if you have done that, if you are someone who would say, yes, I'm a follower of Christ, I trust in him. I just want to ask you, is that how you are functionally living. Your theology might be a crack, crack that's Christ alone. But are you living like it's Christ alone? Think about it this way. We're about to come to the Lord's table. We do this every single week here as a church. As you prepare your heart to come before the table, which is where we take bread that's been broken, the body of Jesus, and drink juice the color of blood, remembering the blood of Christ, as you think about coming to this holy moment, on what basis do you come to his table? What's your hope? That you can take these things and not as what happened in the church in Corinth, be struck down dead. What's your hope? I think I've changed enough this week. I think I've done enough this week. I think if I really, really determined to pray this way and do this new discipline, if I do that, then I'm really going to be... A Friends, that's all yourself. God does not want you to be defined by yourself. He wants you to be defined by him. Why do we come to the Lord's table? We come to remember Christ, and we come through Christ. It's Christ and Christ alone. And so we come to his table week after week after week so that we can remind ourselves again week after week after week that we are people who need Christ. And praise God, we are people who have Christ. And by his grace, we're people who are being changed for the glory of Christ. We come to him again and again because we need him again and again and again. And so what I want to encourage us to do is just to bow our heads here for a moment and just have a time of reflection between us and God. I want to encourage you specifically to think about this. Confess any ways that maybe you've been living with a little bit of self-made religion? What are ways you've been trying to control things yourself? Confess that to God today and freshly put your faith only in Christ today. After a few moments, the band will come up and play, and as they do, we will stand and we'll sing two songs. As we sing those songs, when you hear your heart prepared, just come forward and receive Christ afresh through the elements of the Lord's table. And reminded that he truly is enough. So just bow your heads. Bang, you can join me up on stage. Just bow your heads.
have a moment of reflection between you and Jesus.